Remembers that show? Yeah. Okay. So I asked this question in the first service. One person uh, raised their hand. They're no longer a member or coming to Shiloh, by the way. Um, but who doesn't remember ever hearing that song? All right, you're out. You're out. Who else? Anyone else? Just kidding. We love you. We love you. You're, you're welcome here. We just don't understand if you're not alien. We don't understand why you don't know that. So here's the deal. You may you may wonder about that, but here's a question for you. How many islands, if you were here the first service, you don't get to play this, these few uh, questions. How many islands do you think there are in the world? Take a guess. 10,000. What was that? 500,000. How many? Oh, yes. Well, actually, that's true, by the way. There are somewhere between 2 and 3 million islands in the world. How many of those do you think are inhabited? 11,000 islands are inhabited in the world out of 2 to 3 million. Now, lest you wonder about where are those concentrated, let's take a look at this next stop slide. And that is... That is Sweden. It's not Lake Winnipesaukee yet. <laughs> I like your thinking, though. That is Sweden. How many islands do you think are within the boundaries of the country of Sweden? 222,281 islands just in the country of Sweden. It's the most islands we have in, the, in one particular country. And guess what? Of those, they have 1,145 are inhabited. They have 10% of all the inhabited islands in the world. So you say, Ed, what does that have to do with our message? Nothing. But it's interesting. All right. So you'll notice that we have a bunch of stuff up here that kind of lends itself to our title, Deserted Island Reading. So you may say, what is that? All right, so here's the deal. I'm going to show you today. Oh, and I think I took my, my guide out. I'm in trouble now. Um, so Christians, when asked if you were on a deserted island and could only take one book with you, what book would you take? Bible. Bible. Now, Jaden uh, um, said, as soon as I asked that, Jaden Syverson looked at her mom and said, I take a book on how to build a raft. <laughs> um, that was pretty smart. Uh, so, and then when Christians are asked, what book would they take? 
Which one do you think it is? Romans. Most Christians say if they had to take one book out of the entire Bible, they would take Romans. And when asked what chapter in Romans would they take, what chapter do you think they chose? Who said? Eight. See, that's the most one, that's the one most heard. But the next one, very much like it, is Romans 12. So Romans 8 and Romans 12 always top the list when people are asked what book and then what chapter would they take. So we're going to be studying Romans 12 for the next six or seven weeks. We're going to start today with Romans 12.1. Title for our message today is Stranded, Not Abandoned. So Romans 12 has so much in it. But the key to Romans 12 is that it answers a very important question that, that you and I should have. Many of us do in different, we don't think of it necessarily this way. But it answers this question, what is true spirituality? That's an important question. So Romans 12 tells us this, right off the bat, that one of the most important things about answering this question, what is true spirituality, is to start with an accurate picture of who God really is. That would make sense, right? Spirituality emanates out of this holy, righteous God. So we have to get an accurate picture of who that God is. So let's look at 1 John 3.1. How great is the love the Father has lavished, I love that word, lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Matthew 6, actually 7 and 8, I'm just going to pick up the latter part of 8, but let me begin. And when you pray, do not babble on like pagans, for they think that by their many words they will be heard. Do not be like them. Here's the part. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. 1 John 4, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love, why? Because he first loved us. You see, God, first of all, identifies himself as you, your, and my father. And as the song says today, he is a good, good father. And that's how he wants to relate to us. But it's also how he wants us to relate to him. You see, and this is critical, God our father is a God and a father who actually desires, wants, desperately wants, if I can make that uh, strong statement, to have a relationship with you and to have a relationship with me. But here's something I think gets in our way sometimes for some of you. Some of us don't have a father image to relate to that genuinely wanted to have a relationship with us and went out of his way to have a relationship with us. I am one of those people. My dad wasn't a bad guy at all, but, you know, my dad ran a business. His business, he worked, he was a funeral director. He worked, you know, off and on, sometimes busy, sometimes not. But when he wasn't doing that, he was down the street visiting with friends of ours almost all the time. And so I was raised by my mom for the most part, but my dad never ever tried to make a connection with me. He was more of the authoritative type of father. And uh, so the image I have of a father is, is that, and that's the wrong image for God. So 
it's important that we start by realizing that our earthly father and the relationship we had, whether you're a, a son or a daughter, is not, or whether you even knew your dad, you know, it's very important that you take your accurate representation of God from the Word of God, not from experience. Um, and my, by the way, knowing that after I was saved, it took me a while to work through it, but that's awesome. The fact that my, my heavenly father, my real father, wants to have a relationship with me. So this is the key. God is not some kind of cosmic scorekeeper. He's not an angry God. He's not some impersonal force, okay? And like all good parents, he has a dream for you. And he has a dream for me. And, and here's the good thing about it. He doesn't have favorites, right? So his dream for you and me are exactly the same. His dream is that you would become more and more like his son, Jesus. Like his only begotten son that came and died for us. You see, spirituality, what is true spirituality? I will tell you this. True spirituality is 100% about relationship. It's all about relationship. It turns itself into a desire for, to be obedient, to, in a desire to do good works, but it's not about keeping laws, and it's not about religious activity. See, Jesus said this when they asked him, what is the greatest commandment of all? What did he say? He said, love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what else? Love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, everything you need to know about the law, that's it. Wow. And they, they had laws like, you know, coming out their eyeballs. And, and he said that true spirituality was loving God <clears throat> and loving your fellow man 24-7. True spirituality is born out of always relationship. But that sounds good. But how does that actually work its way into our lives? How do we actually practice this true spirituality? Because there's, there's some important tips on this in chapter 12 of Romans, and especially in verse 1. You see, all of Romans 12 provides this amazing grace-based relational pathway to achieving this idea of true spirituality. So we're going to begin our journey with verse 1, and let's take a look at a few different translations, different ways of, of interpreting the Greek into English. So King James, the one that a lot of us grew up with, not all of us, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies, what, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The voice translation, which I like, says this, Brothers and sisters, in light of all I have shared with you about God's mercies, I urge you to offer your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice to God, a sacrifice, a sacred offering, excuse me, that brings him pleasure that is your reasonable, essential service. And the ESV, the English Standard Version, is what we'll be using for the balance of the message. Here it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So Paul starts off by saying, I, I appeal to you, therefore. Now, therefore is an important uh, word here in this, in this uh, scripture. It's very important. He says, I appeal to you, therefore. Okay, whenever you hear the word, therefore, what does that mean? It means something came before 
Therefore, you either get a statement of fact or perhaps a request. So an example would be, we close at 7, therefore the door was locked when you got there. So we'll assume this person got there after 7. We, we close at 7, therefore, there's a result to that, you couldn't get in. Okay? Or how about this one? I need that first thing in the morning, therefore, please drop it off on your way to work. Okay, there's a request there. But you know in both cases why the door was locked and why the person needs to come over in the morning before they go to work. So, in, in this case, Paul is saying to you, I appeal to you, you church in Rome, on the basis of what is going on in the first 11 chapters of this book. Now, what did Paul not know? That it would ever be a book or that it had chapters. That's a little funny. Uh-huh. And the fact of the matter is that he's taking this long letter of 11, what we now know as 11 chapters, and saying, because of everything you've just heard, therefore. All right, so that's important. I, he's appealing to them on what went on before in those chapters for now in chapter 12. And the important thing here is what you're about to hear in chapter 12 does not come out of the blue. It's not a standalone book. It is born out of these first 11 uh, chapters. And, and Paul, in his amazing way, summarizes chapters 1 to 11 in this simple phrase, the mercies of God. You see, he says that that is a summary of everything I've just taught you from, verses one, from chapters 1 to 11. He says, I have been instructing you for those 11 chapters about the mercies of God. Therefore, I'm now going to, I'm now going to tell you, but more than that, and more appropriately, I'm going to, to appeal to you for that situation. We'll talk about that in just a moment. You see, some of the mercies of God that he's been talking about in those 11 chapters was the death of his only son, Jesus Christ. And because of that death and ultimately that resurrection, those of us who believe in him are justified solely by faith, not by works. And not only that, but it reconciles us to God once and forever. And we have this promise of everlasting joy and everlasting life with this Father who lavishes his love on us. Romans 8 tells us, there is therefore now no what? Man, I, I love that scripture, by the way. I tell the enemy where to go sometimes because, man, this world is full of condemnation. But there's no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. See, Jesus died for, more, for you and I, and more than that, he was raised. He's on the right hand of, of God, our Father. And what is he doing there? What does it say he's doing? He's praying for us. He's praying for you and I. Sometimes that's the only way I make it through this life. Because here's what I think. I think God listens to Jesus. What do you think? I mean, if he doesn't want to listen to him, he's right there next to him. He doesn't have a choice. Just kidding. He does want to listen to him. All right. So, we're born again by these mercies of God. That's what Paul has been telling everyone. But this is the result of that. First tw or chapter 12 starts that. We are now born out of all these mercies into a life of mercy. 
Romans 12 just literally oozes with these concepts of how we, you and I, are to show mercy in response to all the mercies that we receive. 12 says that we're to show mercy with cheerfulness. Love should be genuine. We should be generous with the saints. We should be kind even to those that do bad things for us. We should be sad when someone's sad. We should spend time, hang out with people that we would consider lowly. That we're not to take advantage by being bad to someone who has been bad to us. See, the book of Romans teaches us that we're to build our lives on mercy and each of us is to become more merciful. When I got saved, one of the things I had, I had a fairly quick wit and it's sometimes I used it um, to retaliate against people or to, or to make them feel bad or to get even with them. And it, it wasn't a good trait. So who knows that when you get born again, you don't just tar- turn completely. And I know that my spirit is all new, but my soul wasn't. So I would do that occasionally. My mentor took me aside some, one time and said, Ed, you got a problem. Uh, and he was someone really close to me. So he's one of those people I pay attention to. I do? Yeah, you got to watch your mouth. And it just struck me. Now, did it all go away immediately? No. But I will tell you that from that moment on until age, uh, whatever I am now, older, um, that, that I have uh, tried to make sure that my mouth brings words of life and, and encouragement and healing much more than the other one, the other things that I was doing. See, Paul models this mercy for us in this first um, scripture, first verse in Romans 12. He says this, I appeal to you, brothers... See, he doesn't say, which you have the right to, I command you now, based on the mercies of God, that you do these things. No. He says, I appeal to you. And that appeal, that word from the Greek, actually is a very gentle entreating. It's, it's, it's filled with love and mercy and it's, uh, at its core. And then he calls them brothers and sisters. See, he puts himself on an equal level. He has an apostolic calling. He is ministering to most of the world, known world. He is going to write, although he wouldn't know this, two-thirds of the New Testament. But he says, hey, I appeal to you based on all of us being equal and under the authority of God. But what does he call us to? Because this is important. Actually, first and foremost, he doesn't call us to a life of mercy. He calls us to a life of worship. You see, Paul goes on to describe this new life in Christ as merciful, but he first describes it as worshipful. And why is that so important? It's so important because if not careful, some Christians can become a person that lives a life of doing good things and helping as many people as they can. But it becomes more of a social agenda than it does a Christ agenda. We must never let our Christian life drift into that type of an approach. The world, a a number of individuals and people in the world have that down pat. They're very socially minded. They're trying to help everyone they can. But we do no good if we are not worshiping and leading them to worship in acts 
of mercy, both that we do and ultimately what they would hopefully be called to do. You see, if our good deeds are not expressing the worth of God, then our deeds are not worship, and in the end, they're really not merciful. Making people comfortable, helping them to feel better, to be better, without the ability to see Christ in your good deeds and my good deeds, is not true mercy. True mercy always directs people to Christ. It's the Christian life as a life of worship, so that it can, in fact, be merciful. So Paul says, first of all, that is, it is presenting a sacrifice to God. See, when Paul says that our worship is to present our bodies as a sacrifice, here's what he doesn't mean. In the Old Testament, for the Jews that were hearing this or reading this letter, they always felt when you put something on the altar as a sacrifice, it's always meant to atone. At the core, it's always meant to atone for sin. But whatever you did, it was an atonement type of of issue that caused sacrifices to be brought to the throne of God. And we know that's not what Paul meant because Paul knew that Christ had already died, the perfect lamb slain from the foundation of the earth and the world. And he knew that. So that was not what he was referring to. So we're going to look at this now and see what this really means, what he's telling us. If he's going beyond this idea of mercy, if that's not the core, and it's this worship, then then how do we get there? What does that look like? So we're going to take verse 1, and we're going to look at four words. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So key words, bodies, living, holy, acceptable. So we'll start with bodies. Present them as a living sacrifice. The the point to stress is, is this. Your body counts. You see, you belong to God's spirit, soul, and body. We sometimes make the body part of it seem like it's non, not really important. But your body matters a lot to God. Now, here's the deal. Why would God want my body? I mean, I don't think it's anything worthwhile, personally. Now, some of you here, all right, I can understand why God may want your body. I'm not looking at anyone. That would be inappropriate. But, okay, I wonder that. And some of us here, not looking again, overweight, underweight, wrinkled, blotchy, achy, nearsighted, hard of hearing, on and on and on, right? What kind of sacrifice is that anyway? When the Jews would sacrifice an animal, what kind of an animal was it? Perfect, without blemish. In fact, when they'd offer him something that, an animal that wasn't that, he got angry at them. So, this is not a flaw, I know it looks it, but really, it's not a flawless body. It's not. And for most of us, it is not. All of us, pretty much. So, the sacrifice of the bodies here is not at all like the Old Testament. This was already done, as we said. God doesn't demand your body and my body because of how it looks or doesn't look. He demands it because he's going to use our bodies as instruments of the mercy that he is going to show to others. You know, as I was doing this, I was thinking, 
You know, if our younger adults, and not always just younger adults, but if certainly that age group and teenagers could ever understand how God looks at their bodies, that God doesn't care, God doesn't go by how good looks they have or whatever, that God desires them and just, just the way they are, because he wants to use that body for his service. How much more would we have, you know, self-esteem if we knew that God loved you and wanted to use you just the way you were? You wouldn't want to put drugs in yourself. You wouldn't want to dress in ways that are, that are trying to accentuate certain physical uh, sides of you. And, I, you know, it's just, it's important that we share that with as many as we can in those age groups because it's tough for them. So bodies, living sacrifices. This is not about are you alive or are you dead? Okay, it's not that kind of a thing. We know you're alive if you're reading that. Paul here is talking about your lifestyle and my lifestyle. He's saying that your lifestyle, how we live our lives, that is how we get to this act of worship. How we worship God, it's great. I love singing songs. I love being in worship. It is a wonderful time. But that's very small piece of our weeks. And even if you listen to music and you sing along in your car, that's all great. But worship needs to go on literally 24-7 or 16-7, depending on how much you sleep. Um, and it's a lifestyle that we choose. And it's not necessarily raising your hands and singing to God. It's acting out this mercy that God has called you to and realizing that it's born out of a heart of worship. Out of a heart of worship. Every act of our bodies should be a living act of worship. We should let every act be a living demonstration that God to you and me is more precious than anything else. Let every act of your body put to death all that brings dishonor to God. So so we want to be holy, we want to be living or have a lifestyle of worship. So now we look at that word holy. Holy and acceptable to God. The best explanation of that is probably found in Romans 6.13 where Paul says almost the same thing about presenting our bodies, but a little differently. He uses this word members. We're going to talk about that. It says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. For example, a living sacrifice and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So it's not talking about members in the body of Christ. It's talking about your members. He's saying you control this. You bring this to God. So what are your members? Okay, my eyes, my mouth, my ears, my hands, my feet. Okay, I have these members of my body that I am supposed to use in righteousness and in bringing glory to God. It is a way I worship him by my lifestyle, by my willingness to sacrifice that lifestyle so that those things I would like to do that don't bring honor and glory to him, I put aside. So a story that I refer to often, Gary was here last service, so I could really make fun of him on this, uh, which he's not here right now, so I can't. But 
when I got saved, I was so excited. All I wanted to do was talk about the Lord. And I remember getting together at my house. If you've been in other messages, you may have heard this one before. But we got a message at my house. I was very new as a Christian, so was Gary. We got there and we thought, hey, we'd sit down, we'd get a keg, we'd, we'd just have some really nice steaks and drink beer, and we would talk about the Lord, which we did until we literally couldn't almost talk about anyone anymore. And he staggered home and I staggered to bed. And the next day we got up and you know there was something inside of us that said, I don't think this is the way God wants it to be. So that was the last time that ever happened. But you see, I wasn't, I was talking about him, but it wasn't bringing honor and glory to God by the words that came out of my mouth and by the actions I was involved in. Fortunately, no one else was there but the two of us and my wife, uh, who was not inviting, by the way. Um, so, that that's important that we that we understand this this term holy and that the members of our body i bring worship to god when i use my body appropriately and i dishonor god when i don't so you know if you're sitting here right now there's probably things you could say to me ed there were times that i did things that did not bring honor and glory to god and that's right all of us can say that but here's the big question what are you doing today what are your members involved in today? What comes out of your mouth? What goes into your veins? What goes down your throat? What do you watch? What do you listen to? All those things are how we worship God. It's not always easy because sometimes things that dishonor God bring pleasure to us. No two ways about it. I remember walking with my son when he was young. We went into a casino area. I was born and raised in Atlantic City. We went down there walking down the boardwalk and, and he wanted to see inside of one of the casinos. So we went inside and, and I was <laughs> reasonably new as a Christian and a little uh, harsh, and not harsh, very conservative. And I said, Ben, you know what that is? He said, no. I said, that's sin. And he said, Dad? I said, yes. Boy, sin looks awful good, huh? <laughs> Yes, that's not a ideal. I don't know. I had a really good compound on that. So, in addition to holy, the scripture goes on to say, an acceptable. Present your, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Now, why does this add anything to the word holy? I mean, if something is holy, isn't it acceptable? I mean, doesn't that just go hand in hand? And the answer is, why did he add these words? Because they add God to these words. They make God explicit. Not only holy, but acceptable to God. They remind us that the reason holiness matters at all, the reason that there even is a definition of holiness, is because of God. All right? The word reminds us, this phrase reminds us, that all of these words describing this acts of worship we do, that God has to be the center of all of that. And it's so easy sometimes to get our, our eyes on the things we do that we know are right without understanding that the basis to that right is always God. Sometimes we, we're great that we have put this aside or that aside or that we do this or do that. And we start to lose sight of the fact the only reason I can live the way I do today and know what's right or wrong is because of God. So as I said at the beginning of my message, the book of Romans that we'll be studying over the weeks ahead is all about living this life 
by being merciful because of the mercies of God. But right out of the bat, we get taught that before we worry about that part of our lives, we need to understand that we're called to a life of worship. Not, not listening to songs, that's part of it. Not, not falling on our knees alone in a room, that's part of it. Worship is what you and I do every day as we walk, talk, hear, touch, feel. All of that is how we bring glory and honor to God and how we worship Him in our bodies. So Paul said this, two scriptures I'll bring. The first one is really his personal testimony to what he wrote in this first uh, verse. He said, this is uh, Philippians 1.20, it is my eager expectation and hope that Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You know, I'm convinced that, that as Christians, we don't get this importance of our bodies. It's really important that we understand that on this earth we glorify God in our bodies by going and doing the acts that he calls us to and making sure we direct all of that to him. Secondly, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You know, when I first read this, being somewhat of a a very... Um, self-directed, self-determined uh, individual. At first, I didn't know whether I liked being owned by anyone. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to think that I was owned by anyone. But then the more I thought about it, if I'm going to be owned by someone, why not be owned by God? Who, the word says, lavishes his love on me. I mean, that's the kind of owner I want. But it's important we realize that it's not our own life anymore. You know, I can do what I want, when I want, with who I want. No, that's not really true. The Bible says the steps of a righteous man or woman are ordered by who? By the Lord. And everything that God wants in your life, the mercy you show to others, he does that because of his grand plan for his kingdom. I mean, he loves you. He wants to bless you. But more than anything else, he wants his kingdom expanded before he comes back. Okay, I'm glad he didn't come back before I got saved. But guess what? There's a bunch of people living today, they haven't had that experience. Someday he's coming back and it's going to end the ability for that. But you know what? In the meantime, we glorify God in our bodies by being merciful and pointing them to him. You know, whenever somebody really... I do something nice for someone and, and let's say I, I can't hide it, they know, and they start to say, oh, this, that, and the other... I'll just tell them how rotten of a person I was before Jesus came into my life. And I have examples of that. And they just kind of go, <laughs> you know. But it's important for people to realize, don't put this on me. I, am, I was less than worthwhile. So let's get to our, our title for today. Stranded, not abandoned. You see, I think as Christians, unless we're really in a dark place, or unless we really weren't discipled at all, once we give our lives to Christ, it's not often that we feel abandoned. Oh, we might feel that God hasn't heard our prayer or something like that, but, but we don't feel like God has just abandoned us, left us, not coming back, all that. No, we don't. But I do believe that many of us as Christians sometimes feel stranded. We feel like we're kind of on an island by ourselves. Nobody really understands us. We've been kind of pushed aside. You know, we're struggling 
we're just, we're just stranded somewhere. You know, maybe we believe someday we'll be rescued, but boy, at the moment, we feel really stranded. So here's what I want you to know. That if we understand this concept of being called to worship, to live that out by the relationships we build 24-7, when we understand that out of that, that heart of worship comes this life of giving mercies. You know, God taught me this a long time ago. I don't always have the strength to do this, but I try. That when I'm really going through something, that I need to find somebody going through the same thing and invest in them and encourage them and give them all kinds of scripture and send them away feeling really good. And I'm still right where I was. But guess what? As I share that mercy with others, what does God do? He blesses me. And usually, by the way, when I start sharing with another person, almost always it's worse than my situation. So I can go walk away with that, with that hope. Not always, but many times. But you see, the Word of God says this, given it shall be given unto you. We think about that in finances. It's not even primarily about finances. It's giving the mercies that God has given us to others. And many times, no, I was talking to someone today, which, I, um, which you have no way of identifying, which is important, but they have something going on in their life that I just had happen in my family. And, you know, immediately my heart goes out to them. And I want to invest in them so that they won't make a mistake in this time in their life. Can I do that? I don't know. I'm going to try. But I can invest in them because of the mercies that God has shown me in this very area. Now, I can pour out mercies in them. So, so the call today is, if you're stranded, just understand this. Paul would appeal to you to live a life of worship. Because of what God has done for you, no matter what you're going through, it's, it's greater. And if you will worship me with your members, I will show you how to show mercy to those I put in your path. And then truly all things will work together for your good because you are called then according to my purpose. So Father, I thank you. As we delve into this amazing chapter in Romans, that we start out by knowing that the call is to live a life of worship that leads to mercy, not to live a life of mercy, because that doesn't lead to worship. So Father, I thank you that as we sit here today, that perhaps in each of our lives, we could think of an area where, God, we need your mercies. But God, help me to live this life of worship that recognizes all the mercies you've already given me. And then help me, Lord, to live out the merciful life you've called me to. Father, I ask that today, everyone here, as they walk out, as they use their members in so many different ways today, that they would ask themselves, does this bring glory to God? Or does this dishonor God? Father, help us to realize that you lavish your love upon us. Lord, let us receive that love. Let us worship you because of that love. And Lord, lead us. Lead us to be merciful as you have given so abundantly mercy to us. We ask this in Jesus, your holy, precious name. Amen. I would...
encourage you today, if you need prayer before you leave, please come up front. We'll have some people up here that would love to pray with you. If you're stranded somewhere and want some help, come on up. We'll pray with you. Meanwhile, you can join us downstairs for fellowship. And thank you for being uh, a part of Shiloh this Sunday morning. God bless you all.